You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. The Isles, the projectionist has smicha. Hi, <laughs> I'm here with Yitzhak Kolokowski, and uh, really, let's move away from what we did last week. It's we talked. Let's talk about musicals, a musical that I uh, saw this week that I'd never seen. I'd seen clips of it from That's Entertainment too, I believe. Um, and it was a flop. This this movie was a flop and it really didn't deserve to be one. And it was a flop because it was struggling with what Hollywood in the 50s was struggling with. We've talked before about Cinemascope. We've talked about Technicolor. We've talked about all the innovations, surround sound and 3D and everything that the movies were trying to do because they were fighting the primal enemy, which of course is our subtitle in our show, which is Vintage TV. They were fighting what we call Vintage TV to the nail. They needed to get the people out of their uh, living rooms with Uncle Milty or with Lucy or with Ralph and, and, and Norton and get them back to the theater and to give the theater experience something. Um, and that's part of the reason why the 50s are really, in a way, Hollywood, uh, m- more than people understand, experimenting with this large, almost amusement park experience come to us. Um, the 50s also really, although you know, Cabaret, as I mentioned last week, is sort of an anti-musical musical, um, the 60s musicals, really were hit and miss. You did have Oliver. Uh, you do have, I think, you know, at, at 1971's uh, Fiddler on the Roof, uh, 1961. We'll get to that West Side Story perhaps tonight. But really, the 50s were really the last great uh, uh, push of movie musicals. Singing uh, The 50s start with uh, American in Paris, Singing in the Rain, The Bandwagon. Everybody knows about these musicals and knows uh, the the expertise of the performances, the dances, the singing, um, the extended uh, uh, dance routines that are in them. Um, I want to highlight a, a musical of the 50s, 1955. I think it was really Gene Kelly, who was one of my favorite uh, actors or dancers, uh, you know, I think, and I think, I think, as I got older, I appreciated a stare more. And I think now that I'm already in my 60s, a stare was the superior dancer. But when I was in my youth, when I was a kid, I loved the acrobatic style of Gene Kelly. I loved his 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 energy. And although both he and Astaire understood dancing and understood what choreography was, Kelly was the only one who actually has choreography credit to him and and directing credit to him. Uh, He was directing films even as far into the 70s, like Hello, Dolly and other films. So he was really, in a way, more of the total complete uh, entertainer in in that sense. So this is a film that he and his uh, his his um, collaborator in Singing in the Rain, Stanley Donan. We talked about him. He was, of course, the director of Charade. We talked about him a couple of weeks ago, a uh, Jewish fellow. Uh, they collaborated for the last time on a movie which has a worse title of a musical uh, called It's Always Fair Weather. And this this musical was had a lot of um, uh, <laughs> pedigree to it. Uh, Gene Kelly is the star of the film. Sid Sirish, Sid Sirish is the 
um, is the female lead. And uh, as usual, all of her uh, songs were dubbed. Uh, she sang, <laughs> yeah, she never sang. She was a dancer, a very attractive dancer who could, who could act, but in all the films she made, including the remake of Ninochka called Daddy Longlegs um, with Fred Astaire, all of her singing was supplied by somebody else. But it also has um, Dan Daly, who really was a, a, a somewhat of an overlooked song and dance man. I remember Dan Daly from a, a program that I watched when I was 10 years old called The Governor and JJ, which was an ABC uh, a television program uh, where he plays a governor. And JJ is this typical teenager of the 60s. And, you know, he's a he is a um, he is a. Uh, uh, a widower and the movie was really about the generation gap and that was my first exposure to Dan Daly and then I later discovered as a 10 year old that Dan Daly had been uh, quite a um, established song and dance man tall 64 or maybe even 65 lanky and in his films he was quite a he could move he could he wasn't uh, he wasn't a lumbering fellow at all um, the, uh, the it also stars Michael Kidd now, Michael Kidd was, this was his first film. Uh, he was dubbed as well in his singing. And Michael Kidd was actually a well-known choreographer. Now, there's a, 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 this movie came out in 1955. Earlier in that year, or it might have been 1954, or in the beginning of 55, uh, a, a musical that MGM was very, very proud of. Um, and they were surprised about how popular it was. And it's one of my kids' favorite musicals. I don't know if your kids would like it, Yitzchak. Uh, it's called Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, which I think we've talked about here, uh, that for today's times, it was is based on the rape of the Sabine women, but it has a number of, uh, of, 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 of incredible dance pieces choreographed by Michael Kidd. So Michael Kidd was a very well-known young choreographer who was actually had a star turn in this role. The three of them really represent those three centuries I'll talk about in a minute. The three of them are army buddies. And really this film was written by Comden and Green. And the idea behind it was sort of like a sequel to On the Town. On the Town is one of the, the, the great um, musicals of uh, the late 1940s of the of uh, which is uh, and, and it was it was it was filmed on location uh, was, of course it had uh, gene kelly fred astaire and jules munchen in it, and this was about three sailors who have one day off and what happens to them in new york on that day um the idea was let's revisit these three guys 10 years later well, they weren't able to do that because they couldn't get Sinatra. Uh, Munchen wasn't popular anymore, but they got basically three of the same types. They had a big, tall guy, a big guy. That was Dan Daly, who had done a lot of song and dance work. Um, and Michael Kidd, who had never, act, who had never acted in a film before, but boy, could he dance. Much better than Frank Sinatra could. But he sort of represented the Sinatra type from On the Town. And here the film was really reaching for something a lot more interesting, which is, yeah, you came out of the war. And we all came out of the war in a, in a sense, patriotic, ha in a way, glorious. We won. We survived. It was tragic. But we saved the world. That's what it was when On the Town was made. We were still basking in that glow. By 1955, with the Cold War, with the House Un-American Committee uh, hearings, the world had changed. And especially what had changed was television. 
television wasn't just this oddity, but it was everywhere. And it was the threat. So Comden and Green came up with an idea of not only revisiting people 10 years later and criticizing how the optimism of what the initial post-war world was and how it had devolved into commercialism and just greedy, uh, vulgar aspects. But they were also going to take a knockout punch on organized crime, the fight game, which of course was always televised as well, and television in general. Um, you know, especially programs that in the 1950s were still live before videotape and the idea of, you know, what the Desilu Studios pioneered of, you know, basically making every program uh, like a miniature film, as later happened with the, as we talked about, series like The Twilight Zone, The Outer Limits and others. In the 1950s, many of the programs that went coast to coast were live programs like Queen for a Day or It's This Is Your Life, where somebody would be surprised by a hidden camera, and then they would bring out all his old friends, and uh, th that would be some beautiful human interest story. And again, TV hasn't changed that much, believe me. It's still about finding some sucker out there and pulling the heartstrings. And, and part of what this film was, was being cynical about it. Um, the film starts with these guys leaving the army and being the best of friends. And when they come to a bar, the bartender, who seems like an old Chassidah Shayid, but I mean, he's not Jewish at all, but his wisdom is like the, 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 uh, the wisdom of an old Jew, uh, Tim at the bar, um, tells him, ah, you'll see in 10 years, you're not even going to know each other, right? And they bet that they will. And that they somehow, uh, they take a dollar bill and they divide it into three. And they said, in 10 years from now, on this date, we're going to come back to this bar. And we're going to see that we're still as close as we were. And, of course, that does not happen. Um, and the film highlights that what, what happens when veterans come back. We talked about Yitzchok, of course, the best years of our lives. We talked about the man in the gray flannel suit with Gregory Peck that deal with similar themes about, uh, you know, how the dissonance between the war years and civilian years. But this film is a comedy. It's a satire. And it shows you that, you know, uh, Dan Daly, who had aspirations of being a great artist, you know, basically sold himself as an ad man uh, you know, creating some cartoon, um, uh, cartoon character that's supposed to sell, uh, you know, some detergent. By the way, they show one of his commercials uh, that he created, and it's voiced by the incredible June Foray, a, a nice Jewish girl, who, of course, is the voice of Rocky J. Squirrel, among thousands of other voices that she did, along with Mel Blanc. So that is, um, that's what Daly has become. Uh, Dan Daly has become, you know, he's known as Douglas Howerton in the film. He becomes uh, a, a stuffed Madison Avenue, a fellow who's actually living in Chicago, but is all part of an advertising company uh, and, and now has an ulcer and is basically totally in the business world and has thrown away his aspirations to be a great artist. Um, Kelly, who they thought was so smart and so able to get things done, would have become a lawyer and a politician and change the world and make the world better. 
becomes a racketeer, a bum, someone who is involved with with gamblers and the mafia and is just trying to go from uh, case to case, trying to from stake to stake, from, you know, beautiful woman to beautiful woman, not really caring about any of them, uh, just basically giving up and total and since a hedonistic, um, greedy sense of, of life. And um, the third character, who's uh, Michael Kidd, whose name, you know, I, I, I think he's called Angie in the film. Um, uh, he uh, ends up, you know, in a way, living a, a beautiful dream, <laughs> finding, you know, a, a wife living in Schenectady and, you know, having many, many children and having a little roadside diner. But he had thought that he was going to be a great chef. And, um, and he, you know, he had, but meanwhile, he was reduced to just basically taking care of his kids, but he's clearly become very much, very provincial. When they meet 10 years later, they can't stand each other. And the film, you know, indicates that in a lot of funny ways. Um, and, and many of us, when we meet our old friends, uh, we go through this, people that we went to yeshiva with, people that we were part of our, our kids that we grew up with. And now we have nothing to talk about even though we had great times. And the film does a great job, I think, of, of bringing out the, the disillusionment and, uh, and, and it, you know, reading into the minds of these three. What they don't realize is, is that um, the Daly's character uh, is part of an advertising company that runs this television program, which is one of these surprise shows. And when Sitcherich gets, gets whiffed that this is why these three are here, they plan on surprising them, keeping them basically um, uh, engaged with various ways in order to get them on this show, that they are going to be the surprise guests uh, on, on this show, which is going to highlight the fact that 10 years later, they could get together and maybe they could still be friends. Um, that's basically the plot outline of the film. What's really great about it is the the numbers, um, you know, the, the 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 numbers that were choreographed by Kelly Donan, I'm sure Michael Kidd had a part in as well, are some of the most lavishly creative uh, choreographed numbers that Hollywood ever produced. And again, this is not really to compare to Jerome Robbins' incredible, um, you know, uh, stuff that he did in West Side Story that really broke the mold. But, you know, for example, there is a, a sort of like a, an eight or nine, 10 minute beginning of getting drunk, <laughs> of what it's like to have three guys coming out of the army getting drunk and, 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 and really, you know, you know, putting a tie on and, 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 and really enjoying the town. And um, they do it with garbage cans and, and, and taxi cabs. Um, and all three of them are able, you know, unlike, you know, on the town and other films where Kelly was obviously the superstar. The other, the other two can pretty much match him uh, on, on many of those moves. So that's really just that's just a very inventive, great scene. Um, and today you couldn't film that because you cannot film a scene about people being drunk and 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 and, and be celebratory about it. The fact that these three guys are going from bar to bar getting drunk because a guy got a Dear John letter, and in every place they're more drunk than the next one and dancing like drunk people with garbage cans. You know, today that would be considered terrible taste, bad taste. But in the 1950s, 
being drunk was, and we've talked about this in films before, it wasn't, you know, it was, it was frowned upon, but it was also a positive engine for many, many scenes. Um, I think another scene there, which I think is, is worth the price of admission, is when, you know, Kelly um, sort of has a change of heart, his character, and he realizes how much of a bum he's been, that he's involved with the mafia, and the fighter he's trying to push is really, uh, is going to go in for the fix. Um, Kelly is, tries to escape these mob boss, this, the mob hitmen, and he goes into a, what at that time, you might have heard about this Yitzchak, from your from your grandparents, what was a very popular thing to do for people to go into was just a roller rink. People would uh, pay a couple of bucks, put on the roller skates, and just go around and around uh, and spend, you know, this was a, a way to spend some time. He goes into there to hide from them, but as he leaves, he actually leaves with his roller skates. And he ends up doing, which I think is really Kelly's, you know, everybody, you, you of course, Yitzhak, uh, whatever you feel about musicals, you probably have seen Kelly's um, bravara performance of, of uh, in Singing in the Rain, where he does this, you know, all these moves with his umbrella, uh, etc. Um, this is sort of like Kelly's last type of scene like that with the roller skates. I, I have to say, negatives, the songs are completely forgettable, you know, totally forgettable. Unlike Singing in the Rain, where all the songs are basically old Hollywood songs, even the song Singing in the Rain has been used, I think, 30 times in various Hollywood movies. 1951, they just re-recycled uh, a song that had been around for years. These songs, uh, not, you know, again, I, I forgot who exactly was the, uh, I think Andre Previn was the composer of the music. Andre Previn, of course, was a uh, was an escapee from Germany, uh, a Jewish composer, um, and, and probably as impressive as Leonard Bernstein, but not as much of an ostentatious show-off as he was. Um, uh, this, you know, but Pre Andre Previn had, had been scoring some films in Hollywood, um, but the songs are all forgettable. Um, but what they do with them is is, is quite copy. Compton and Green know how to write witty dialogue. The third dance, the third number, which I think is worth it, is where Daly's character um, decides to, it, it, being drunk, <laughs> well, he's not supposed to drink, but he being drunk, he, he basically lampoons the whole uh, world that he has been in. Uh, the world of the advertisement, the world of sucking up to the boss, um, uh, and which was Billy Wilder used in the apartment as well. But this was with a similar type of satirical sword um, and uh, how we, through the dance and through the song, you see that he rediscovers his real self. And I think that's part of what um, the film is about, that it has, although it's very cynical, in its heart, it says you can actually uh, perhaps rediscover that that spark of youth, that spark of energy, that spark of authenticity and optimism. Um, and again, it somehow it comes together at the end. Originally, when they are um, brought to this television show, they basically neither of them want the prizes that are given to them uh the whatever it was the door prizes that they were going to be given by the company they rip up and throw it back in their faces but when it turns out that the mafia gets involved and uh their buddy is in trouble uh they realize over this day 
just like on the town, you know, during one day, they could rediscover their old selves. Um, and um, yeah, uh, you know, they also, again, the, tangentially, the film also deals with the realities of divorce that was occurring among veterans. So the, the film is really, in a way, quite complex. Uh, and it, 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 I guess it doesn't really come together in the classic way that that the music, other musicals I mentioned, but I give it an A for attempting something and for providing some real great numbers. I think, I think people came out of the film, you know, realizing the bitterness against television, that television was clearly um, just out to get your money, was out there to, to promote um, cheap emotion, uh, to do gotcha stuff. Um, and I think people didn't want to hear that because they liked their television. Uh, and and, and, and I, it was sort of like a film that, in a way, it, it could have just been a satirical dig at TV without the musical numbers. Uh, and I think people didn't understand that. You know, they, 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 they felt that it, there was too much pepper in it. And I think because of it, the film flopped totally at the box office. I think it's only, I think, in, in, in more recent years that people have realized uh, the type of artistry and expertise uh, that went into that film. Um, and it's, uh, again, it's the title has nothing, it's always fair weather. The title has nothing to do really with what I think the themes of the film are, the film is. But if you are in the mood for some smart writing and for some great dancing, adequate singing, but really some dancing that really makes you think this, I think, might be a great option for you. It's always fair weather. It's like, I know you hate musicals, but I know you have one that you like. Go ahead. Well, no, it's, uh, it, I guess it's technically a musical, um, but it, it's it's really only known for one song. And in a certain way, it's, it's uh, almost the opposite of what you're saying, because, again, the film wasn't a great hit. Uh, it won the Oscar for the best song. Um, and the song is great. The song is High Hopes, which is a song that, like, I just remember my father would all, you know, my father always liked to sing, you know, at random times. And that was one of his real go to songs was High Hopes. So, really. Uh, You're talking about the remake of the Philadelphia story, right? High Bad. And, and again, it had, it got, it got pretty good reviews, but also didn't, it was uh, mediocre box office returns. Not recognized as really a great film, but it's a, but the the song the song High Hopes is just it's a it's a great song, you know like everybody loves that song. The story is it's very interesting because again it's similar to what you're talking about about the uh, you know not necessarily coming back from the war, but the the issues of you know racketeering of. Uh, and, and womanizing and all of these things that the Frank Sinatra character is a, he's a nightclub owner, a hotel owner in Florida and he's trying to put on these airs that he has a lot of money and also he's a single father and he's dealing with, with his son who's played by Eddie Hodges who uh, did some television, he played Huck Finn in the, in the movie in 1960 um, but the, the funniest part of it is that he has this crazy idea that no one that would ever do in real life at the time and, and was that he's going to buy some tract of land somewhere in Florida and make another Disneyland <laughs> in Florida. Mm. Uh, so, you know, at the time, Disneyland was big in California and it was 
sometime until Disney World in Florida would actually be a reality, but he actually somewhat, uh, you know, you know, uh, uh, I guess predicted that the, the makers of this film was based on a play actually, um, which was uh, just uh, two years earlier. The, who and and the, and the, oh, the movie was directed by Frank Capra. Also, sure. So very, uh, it's a CinemaScope film. So again, it was it was reminded me when you were talking about CinemaScope, all the 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 gimmicks and things like that, trying to get people into the into seeing the movies. The High right. Hopes was a, was a big song. It was it was JFK's campaign song uh, for this for his presidential run so i guess that might have helped him win so right uh, again it also has um look edward g robinson uh who i think i i I seem to remember now that we're talking about the film i think edward robinson sort of he almost steals every scene he's in no i mean he's 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 very serious he's he's trying to take take the kid away to say that you know that that Frank Sinatra's character is not, he's not a reliable father. It's it actually, this, that, that part of the story reminds me of a recent film that was made in Yiddish, Menasha. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you saw Menasha. Sure. Yes, that, I did. Sure. That's the, you know, that a single father who his brother doesn't feel that he's, and I, I know the fellow who played the brother pretty well. I mean, I talked to Menasha every now and then, but the, the guy who played the brother in that movie, um, mm-hmm. uh, trying to remember his name now wise house he lives he lives in teaneck well now mm-hmm. he moved up to cal to, to um pennsylvania yearly wise house but anyway it's the same type of story that the you know uh, a very you know, reliable uh, uh uh you know responsible brother is trying to take away the son you know his his nephew from from the irresponsible brother and did you get a sense though that that uh you know i mean edward g robinson i know his wife was played by thelma ritter i mean who uh was also really the 50s was really her time to shine and so many little uh pick up on south street and uh rear window and other films that she made but you know thelma ritter two jews right do they play the role i mean they they're they're supposed to be italian in the film like sinatra is but is there a touch of a jewish uh aspect there or is it uh yeah, it kind of feels like that. It kind of feels like right. It's you know, it sort of feels like you know him and his wife are sort of like a typical you know, a, a, a typical Jewish husband and wife film. So um, you know, uh, Lenny Bruce said, said Italians are Jews. So it's like... <laughs> right, and and many times I mean we've seen that a lot in in in, in not vintage TV but in newer TV, uh, just like you know, everyone loves Raymond and other programs where. You know, Jews, you know, Jewish mothers are, are are painted as Italian mothers. So I think we, you know, we have that happening quite a bit. So you would say it's looked at um, that um, you f- you feel that it, it it deserves its its running time and it holds your interest throughout. Uh, high hopes. Not, not, I mean, the song. I think I actually finished watching the movie. I I I got it in the in the supermarket in in the. Muncie, uh, Pennsylvania, <laughs> not Muncie, New York. I was, I had some work to do in, uh, with the prison system in Muncie, Pennsylvania with some training. And I saw it in the supermarket there. I was like, oh, this is only $5. I'm going to, I'm going to bring this home. I'm trying not to buy any more DVDs, especially with everything streaming. It is streaming on Tubi, which is a free streaming channel. Um, 
So, uh, you, know, you know, it's it's definitely worth uh, checking it out because it's uh, particularly the song. The song is great and the song is, is very... Right, but obviously, you know... Um... And they, 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 I think what's part of what's kind of missing is the father and son chemistry seems a little bit forced. And I look, I, look, I, look, I love Carolyn Jones. To me, she is the definitive Morticia Adams. There's no question about that. Yeah. But um, but I think she plays sort of like a hippie, type, a beatnik type of girl, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's very much a, a piece of its time, just, I think, similar to um, what uh, It's Always Fair Weather. So yeah, uh, I, th- I think the two films have much in common. And that, that's what that's what really made me remember you know, yeah, of looking into this because yeah, I, I I think we probably you know we have to realize that that unfortunately we live in an era where the the experts dominate. You know, you have the 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 hundred best. Here's the list. Um, this is what uh, you know. Uh, the whatever sort of film journals or uh, talking heads promote, and I think oh, oh, so much of the material uh, of that of the fifties. You know, goes by the wayside. You know, I think people people enjoy a narrative that they can understand, and I think films that are failed experiments but have you know certain you know moments that are that are marvelous. I mean, a story I, about a, a single father trying to trying to make his way in the world, but also trying to keep his relationship with his son. I think it's a it's a it's a, a contemporary type of a story. It's a it's you know something that even it seemed a little bit out of place in the fifties, you know, it's something more. Sure. Uh, sure. And I, right. I think it's also, you know, with, with the fascination, I think that the Jewish world, and I think all of America has with Florida, it's probably, you know, it's always nice to, to go back to Florida the, before it became, <laughs> before it became everything that Americans wanted to flock to. I mean, I think we have, uh, uh, you know, you, you always hear you know, what's going on and the idea of Miami, um, as this, as how this, it, how it got started, it's really uh, a rollick. Yeah, Miami is a good place to revisit. And I think it was there. Uh, was it filmed on location? Tell in the movie was Garden of Eden, but it was actually the Cardozo Hotel, mm. nice Jewish name, and mm. um, and actually filming. Uh, it, it took forty days to film this movie in Miami. And the local media there was just having a field day um, milking any rumors about Frank Sinatra, I'm sure, about many ties to the mafia and things like that, or, you know, his, uh, you know, maybe his his uh, demeanor and things like that. So they were, which was, I don't know if that was as, you know, played up in the 50s as it was later. You know, he certainly, that was when he was at the, the height of his career, uh, late 50s, early 60s, uh, as he'd already been around for, for over a decade then. Uh, almost right, but I, I think it was almost the period before Sinatra, you know, became larger than life as sort of like the head of the Rat Pack. You know, I, I think the 60s with Ocean's Eleven and some of those other really, you know, really trashy films that he made, you know. Yeah, that's, that's when, that's, yeah, that's when he became an archetype more than... Right, uh, right. you know, when, you know when, when he played like the detective and other films that he was making uh, in the 60s and early 70s um, and really sort of like faded away. I mean, The Maturian Candidate, I think, was probably the last 
um, you know, I guess the last major dramatic role that, that really resonated. I mean, a lot of the other films he made with the Rat Packs was sort of like, you know, like, like, you know, uh, like he was just, he was just mailing it in, you know? So I think, you know, you have Sinatra really at the end, you have Edward G. Robinson, you know, um, still doing his, his career, but yeah. Yeah. So it's definitely, you know, worthwhile to see. Some, so sort of similar, you know, here's Kelly and Sinatra really, you know, sort of, uh, of course, Sinatra, you know, was able to sustain success way into the eighties and, you know, doing, um, appearances and to sell out crowds and all of his uh, you know his platinum records but in terms of the way we remember them in that golden period um you know it's probably some of the last stuff where sinatra was sort of like the sinatra that that uh, that we remembered back in you know coming out of the you know in the war years and beyond um and, and look you know we we know his ties to to uh, organized crime and we also know how as you said, how involved people were in the rumors about him and, and involved in politics, you know, that he was getting. Um, so it's, it's interesting as sort of a time capsule, I guess, uh, to look at. To, it's, to... A, it's certainly a historical film. It, it, it's a very significant film that, that <laughs> I think is somewhat overlooked, but maybe, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not horrible, not the best. It's, it's something. Uh... I would say also, you know, in terms of Capra, you know, we talk about, um, you know, you know, Capra, of course, it had some of the most um, you know, the greatest run, you know, in the in the 30s and 40s of the films that he was the films that he made. Um, and, um, you know, I think, you know, you know, this is like the only had like two or three films, I think, that he made after that. Right. I think so. I think yeah. uh, I think, you know, Cap Capra's. Um, you know, I think he has a pocket full of miracles, I think that the. Uh, yeah, and uh, I think which is in 1961. Um, I think this was really one of the last films. Yeah, he, he stopped making films in '64, so yeah, he really. Uh... You know, this was really, in a way, some of the and maybe the you know, the lack of success is really part of what he decided to sort of like <laughs> to sort of cash it in. But uh, well, Capra, you know, you know, Capra. Of course, we know we we, we talked about it's a wonderful life uh, often, but. You know, you know, Capra was always accused of over sentimentalizing in his films. Um, again, I haven't seen the film in a long. I don't think this one was a. This wasn't over sentimentalized. This wasn't like the uh, you know pristine Americana. This was a. Uh, it was gritty for for Capra. It wasn't a gritty film. It was. It wasn't Ocean's Eleven. It wasn't. You know, but it was. I would say for Capra, it was. Uh, although Capra, you know, could get very serious both in dark both in it's a wonderful life and in mr smith goes to washington all all his films he could get to to dark places it wasn't uh but uh you know this this is a i i wouldn't say a dark comedy it's a it's a comedic film but it's it's not particularly dark but it, it's you know it's well definitely worth worth your while and, and anyway, again you know for me you know I, i'm able to I'm of an age where I can suspend my disbelief and realize that for people to break into song, it's, it's, it's sort of ridiculous. It doesn't seem to make sense at all. Um, Something like that. That's uh, yeah. But, you know, it's a, uh, it, it, you know, I, I think when we allow ourselves for the song to wave, to waft over us, uh, well, they, they, it's they, important. They kind of 
tried to put it into the story. They're like, oh, you remember that song that I taught you? You know, like that. Yeah, right. Like it, 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 they fit it in. You know, it wasn't it wasn't the ridiculous, nonsensical type of uh, how most of the musicals are. Or you know, I get it. I get it. it. And it's not really a musical in in this in the traditional sense. It's a musical and. It's really only, even though there are two songs in the movie, it's really, it's really only that song with they keep really playing uh, over and over again. Right? Doesn't Sinatra sing over the credits? Isn't Sinatra singing in the yeah. opening credits too? Yeah, yeah. It's a different. Good. I think he sings a different song over the credits, doesn't yeah. he? It's it's, uh, it's uh, all my tomorrows is the name of the right. So you know, you, know, you look. It's almost like you know when Doris Day made a movie, you, you had to have some sort of. You know, even you know, she had to have some. That there to be some song of hers uh, singing it in somewhere. And I mean, Sinatra made surprisingly a lot of a surprising amount of movies without singing. You know, that's the. I understand, but there, but you know, uh, there's yeah, so I, many, there's so I many different. I, I think it was uh, Forrest Ackerman said that when they remade King Kong in in '76 and didn't have any dinosaurs, he said that's like if you would tell the the story of Frank Sinatra and I have him sing a single note. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Look, certain people. You look. You know, like, like we talked about Judy Garland last week. You, you, you have to you, look. You have to bring people in. I think one of the reasons why you know, you know, in '61, you know, look, we talked about Gene Kelly a couple of minutes ago. You know, he. I think it was in '61. I think he made Inherit the Wind. Uh, and many people thought he was miscast. You know, he plays the um, the H. L. Mencken character, uh, the cynic uh, in the Scopes trial. I forgot what they called him. You know, every, everybody had a little bit of a pseudonym in that in that film. Uh, but you had Frederick March and Spencer Tracy um, and Dick York, of course. But yeah. also, but but uh, Gene Kelly uh, was, you know, again, he it was hard for him to really make it in a film that there wasn't going to be any dancing or singing in. Uh, he didn't have a great singing voice, but he was able to carry a tune well enough. Um, and uh, if he ain't dancing, like, you know, what do you need him there for? Uh, you know, Sinatra perhaps could um, could carry, could be in a film without, you know, his acting um, uh, and, and when he wanted to, to push it through. But, uh, yeah, you got to give... I Parent the Wind. I, I, I find it to be a very, very enjoyable film. I think it's a beautiful film, actually. Well, it's a beautiful play. Inherit the Wind was a, a great play, and um, it was inaccurate in terms of you know the actual story. I mean, it did you know it, it played fast and loose with the Scopes trial, right? But you know, but the Scopes trial was definitely something that uh, it's still very fascinating. Hundred years later, to come back to. But my point is, is that you know, age is a reality. Edward G. Robinson is an example of someone who was able to deal with his age. Sinatra, Kelly, and these others, we talked about Cary Grant a number of weeks ago. Um, it's tough when you push that envelope and you're getting to that point. Um, and you have to know when to bow out. And I think that's uh, when you have the gift. Uh, you, know, uh, you know, if we talk about great you know, musicals and seeing people on their last little you know, flash, um, I would, uh, you know, it, it, it's worthwhile to see Astaire's last film where he's really dancing, which is in uh, Finian's Rainbow, where he plays a, uh, where he plays a leprechaun, actually. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's got Petula Clark in it, of course, but you can see, you know, he ain't what he used to be, but you can see the flashes of, of, of the greatest there. Um, 
Kelly, you know, was in a film. I think it, it hits our. We can talk about it. I, I I only saw pieces of it, but it sounds like something you want to throw up from Xanadu, uh, where I think he he actually does a little bit of a twirl of a dance in there. Um, but I think again, you know, we talk about uh, in our world, Yitzchok, you know, as they get older, they you know, um, and, and I think that uh, you know, of course, with uh, with Rachaim being nifted this week and 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 others, you know, uh, we we understand that in the world that we're talking about here, you really have to know uh, how to go out, whether it's Capra, the director, or Sinatra. Or Kelly, uh, for that matter, you have to know when. You know when yeah, you're. You can see the emptiness of of, of that world. Uh, you know. Exactly. Exactly. Anyway, let's. Well, watch your step on the way out. We'll catch you hopefully next week. Take care, everybody. Keep the music in your heart. Be well. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.